Uh, Yahweh God, we are so thankful that we get to know you personally. We're so thankful that you made a covenant with our ancestors uh, at Mount Sinai, and you made a new covenant um, with the church um, at the Last Supper. And we thank you, Lord, that because of uh, that new covenant with Jesus, um, we get to share in his life and in his death and his resurrection and eternal life with you. We pray, Lord, that tonight you would speak to us through one another and through your spirit and through your scriptures, and that we would understand more of um, who you are and how we can share this incredible story and covenant with um, those around us who don't know you personally. Um, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, so tonight um, we're going to talk about um, why uh, evil exists or why there's evil, okay, the problem of evil. And um, I'm going to just skip past the things we've had every week because they haven't changed and you've heard them. And I want to get straight to the problem of evil because we got a lot to do tonight. Um, so um, as we've been thinking about apologetics, we've talked a little bit about some proactive things that we can share, like the power of the resurrection or the, the historicity of the resurrection, rather, or um, you know, the idea of um, the complexity of creation and the impossibility of that being random and all those different things. Um, and then the last couple of weeks, we've been doing more responses to concerns a non-believer might have. And I think the, the biggest um, like legitimate question for any Christian or, or really any monotheist is the problem of evil, right? Um, how can there be evil in the world if there's a good God? Um, and we, we sometimes we call this the tripartite quandary, right? The three-part question. Um, and, and the three parts are really quite simple, right? Um, God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil exists, right? So if two of those are true, we're great, right? If God is good but not all-powerful and there's evil, sure, I get it. If God is all-powerful but not good and there's evil, I get it. If God is all-powerful and good, but there's not evil, that would make sense. But, but we believe all three of those things, right? We believe that um, God is really good, that God really is all-powerful and made everything, and that there's real evil in the world, right? And, and that poses some problems, right? Because if God is the source of everything, is God the source of evil? If God is in control of everything, is God making the evil happen? Um, if God... Um, is all good, why does it just stop all the suffering and evil in the world, right? So these are very legitimate um, theological, philosophical questions that sometimes have a very personal element, right? Sometimes people ask the question about evil because they're just asking a philosophical question, but often it's like, this bad thing happened to me, right? This bad thing happened to me, and how can there be a good God when he allowed this horrible thing to happen to me, or a horrible thing to happen to someone I know? Right? So this isn't just a philosophical question for many people. This is a deeply personal question for many people. Um, we're going to think about it philosophically and, and theologically tonight, but recognizing that sometimes when people ask this question, they're not necessarily looking for you to have the perfect answer. They're looking to see if you care about them. Right? They're looking to see if you like are interested in hearing their story and will sit with them and listen. Um, and Sometimes when somebody says, I don't, you know, how can a good God allow suffering? Our response should be, you know, tell me about your story. Is there suffering in your story? And, and I'd love to hear about that. And not, let me argue with you right away. Are, are we together? Okay. Um, I said as an important pastoral note, because we are going to do some arguing with it, but I want to make sure that that's in our immediate response to people. Okay. Um, boy, I threw up a bunch of scriptures up there. I'm not going to read very many. I'm not going to read any of those, actually, because I don't think we need a lot of convincing about those ideas, right? We, we all think God is good. We all think God's all-powerful and the creator of all things. And in general, we're on board that there's bad things up there, right? Um, but uh, this becomes a problem, particularly a problem for monotheists, right? So anybody who believes in one God, um, if, you are a, if you're in the times of the Bible, you're a polytheist, you believe in lots of gods, not a problem. Some of them can be good, some of them can be bad, problem solved. Right? Um, it's certainly, there are many traditions in the history of time that have been dualist, right? One good God and one bad God, equally powerful, fighting over things. And if that's your tradition, then evil is not a problem for you, 
right? The good God makes good and the bad God makes evil. But that's not our tradition. Um, and we'll get to Satan later, but we do not think Satan is the opposite of God, right? He's nowhere near God's level. And so he can't be the source of things like God is the source of things, right? He's, he's not equivalent to God. Um, so uh, we, we struggle with this. Um, but before we go any further, I'm just curious. You've all had this thought or conversation with somebody at some point. So when somebody asks you, why is there suffering in the world or why does evil exist or whatever else, what kind of responses do you usually think about? You might share or not share, but what do you think about? <clears throat> okay, good. The, the devil is important. We're going to spend some time on that tonight. Mm -hmm. Good. Original sin. Okay, original sin is important. We're going to talk about that some tonight too. Okay, good. Free will. Free will. That's got to come up. Okay. So that's three excellent answers right there. I mean, parts of our conversation. Yep. Um, let me. Let, I was. I was going to say let me be devil's advocate, but I don't want to be his advocate. Um, let me be the difficult person on the other side. Um, and. Uh, I would say if we keep asking the why question, eventually we run into trouble, right? So we're going to come to all three of those topics. But if I said, well, sin happens because free will. Okay, that makes sense to me. But why would we choose something bad if God made us good in the first place? Um, oh, well, the devil, he tempted us. And so we'd say, who's devil? Good answer. Love it. Um, why did the devil tempt us? Why did the devil fall? What made him bad? Right? And, and at some point, we get to a point where we're like, wait a minute, this is a little bit uncomfortable because if God made the devil good, why would the devil go bad? Right? No one tempted the devil. Right? Why, did, why do we ever get off the, the rails in the first place? Right? How did evil come into being? Okay. So that's what we're going to try to wrestle with a little bit tonight. Um, just as an aside, uh, and this is a a comment that's mostly useful when you're having a purely intellectual conversation with somebody and not a deeply personal one. But when somebody says, well, you know, how can there be a good God if there's evil and suffering in the world? Um, one of my thoughts is, well, what do you mean by evil? We, we spent some time last week talking about defining good, right? Um, what do you mean by evil? Because if by evil you mean things I don't prefer, right? Like, I would like to um, be home at 10. I'm going to be home at 11. That's evil. Well, that's not, to me, that's not what evil means. It's not just a matter of preference, right? There's an absoluteness to it. Um, how are you defining that, right? How are you defining the absoluteness of it? Um, and and C.S. Lewis and I would ultimately come back and say, even to argue there is a real evil is to suggest there's also a real good and, and a standard by which evil and good exist that's above and beyond human preference. And at that point, we are heading quickly down a road of religion, right? Of, of a belief in God who defines good and defines evil above and beyond human preference. Right? So even to argue that evil exists and is a problem for the Christian faith is in some level to say, well, but you're also kind of arguing that there is a God who defines good and evil. And so it's, it can be a, um, a problematic argument from a philosophical point of view, right? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So we're uh, like with obedience and disobedience. Yes. In both, both realms. I mean, being obedient, you know, evil, disobedient. Yes. Obedient or disobedient to who? God. Yeah. So as soon as you posit God, then we're then we have a real definition of good, and it makes more possible a definition of evil. But if you don't posit God, right? So if you're a non-believer and you're saying, "How can there be a good God if there's evil?" I would come back and say, "Well, what do you mean by good or evil? If it's just what you would like or what your society likes?" I mean, the Europeans thought they were doing good by colonizing Africa and the Americas, but the Africans and the Native Americans didn't think it was good, right? Um, so cultures can define good and individuals can define good, but that's totally subjective. And you can't blame somebody for their subjective 
But if you're saying there's actual really bad stuff, then we're already on a path of saying there must be a real God who defines good and evil, or at least a standard that is ab above human creation. This is C.S. Lewis's moral, moral law argument. Do you define anything different between righteousness and good? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, I, I think that there are, there are two challenges with that. Um, so in the New Testament, we get a lot of righteousness language. In the Old Testament, we get a lot of good language. The word shows up in both, right? Um, I am at the moment thinking about the Genesis story of, you know, um, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And um, my, my mom and I are doing this class right now and it's been really, really good and, um, and really, really good. And one of the, the theses of this professor is that we have, that, that the beginning of sin is our desire to usurp what good and evil mean from God. Right, so remember in the days of creation, God sees the light and he says it's good. He sees the dry land and says it's good. So God gets to be the one who sees things and defines them as good. And then later on, in the second chapter, he sees um, uh, the man alone. He says it's not good. So now God is the definer of good and evil. Right? But then he makes the tree, and then we say, oh, we, we would like to be in charge of what's good and evil. We want to make those definitions. Um, so I'm, I'm using the word good partly because um, I, I have this Old Testament mindset at the moment, um, but also because it doesn't have the same uh, theological significance for a non-believer. Um, but ultimately, I don't think there's a major difference. I mean, I think conceptually, righteousness being in a right relationship with God um, is the biblical definition of good. Right? We have a secular idea of good, which is a little different. Right? I mean, it's, it's good to uh, eat healthy, but that's not a moral imperative. But biblically, I think, yeah, good means being in right relationship with God. Yeah. That's a good question. If, if Satan came to Earth mm -hmm. before creation, before the fall, was evil already here in creation? Ah, okay. Yeah, we're gonna get there. <laughs> we're, we're gonna talk about Satan in just a minute. Okay, it's good. Um, but before we get that far, um, let me just throw out a, a couple of ideas. So. While we um, have a very defined Christian perspective, there are, even in, the, in our Christian tradition, some different ideas about what evil is and looks like, okay? So I want to throw out a few um, that are either secular or even a little bit Christian. Uh, the first one is the, what I would call the deterministic view. Um, and, and this is the one that I would argue is, is least compatible with our faith, but a lot of people have, right? There are a lot of non-Christians that are basically determinists, which essentially just means everything happens the way it has to happen, and it's all predetermined, right? So you don't really have the ability to choose what you want to do. It's all mapped out for you, right? Um, and so a, a lot of non-Christians have this view, a, a lot of um, um, People that might be agnostic would come back and say, well, you know, you are who you are because of your genetics or because of your um, experience growing up in your home or um, because uh, of psychological factors. And they might even, a, a lot of really hardcore determinists would even say, hey, you know, the whole universe is the way it is because one molecule had another molecule, another molecule, and it's all set in the course, right? And it's just, it's just like a system that's running. Um, and in a, a determinist view, there's not really good or evil. There's just what has to happen. Right? This is sort of inevitable. Right? Not a lot of people live their lives this way, um, but a lot of people articulate this philosophy. Um, and, and though I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure this is entirely fair, I'm not an expert on Buddhism, this is kind of how I see Buddhism, right? Um, Buddhism is the idea um, that you have to sort of accept things as they are without necessarily trying to change them, right? And so, um, you know, a, a Buddhist might say, sure, I have the right to live and the plant has the right to live and the plant doesn't have more of a right to live than I do or vice versa. Uh, and then at some point, a Buddhist might even say, you know, I have a right to live and the cancer in me has a right to live, right? And, and my job is to figure out to be at peace with me and my cancer, right? Now, 
it's a little bit extreme, right? Um, but but often there uh, that philosophy is articulated as a lack of understanding, right? So if I just understood um, um, myself better, I would get past my passions and my um, desire for my physical health or whatever, and I get to a point where I'm at peace, I'm one with everything, whether that's my cancer or my healthy cells. Right? And that, that's basically a determinism. Right? It's basically saying, I think Buddhists would say, um, yeah, sure, there's, we experience good and bad, but they're not really good and bad. And the goal we get to a point where we're beyond that, right? Where we, we're sort of beyond those labels. This is not a Christian idea, right? But this is an idea that's, you know, I think, common um, for a lot of people in our culture and, and as I said, as I understand it in Buddhism today. Um, another view about good and evil that I would just throw out, oh gosh, that I'd throw out very briefly, that, that is um, moving into a Christian perspective is what I'd call the providential view, okay? The providential view is basically um, that everything happens for a reason, but God is the reason, okay? So it's not just some molecule moved or you have these genes or this happened when you were 12. Um, but um, uh, God's in control of everything, and everything that happens happens for, for God's reasons. And, and the problem is still a lack of understanding, but this time it's a lack of understanding about God's plan. This is not completely unbiblical. Um, for example, we'll come to this a couple times tonight, but remember the story in Genesis when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and then um, eventually, after a long story, rises to prominence in Pharaoh's court and saves his family and the whole world um, from famine. And he says to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. Right? Basically saying, um, behind your bad choice was actually God's sovereign will to make all this good stuff happen much, much, much later. Right. Um, and and uh, Romans 8 28, and all things God works for the good of those who love him and call according to his purpose. Um, but but even the story of Jesus a little bit plays into this, right? I mean, Jesus is murdered by the people he came to save, and then it turns out that that death is actually the atonement for our sins, and he's raised from the dead, and now we have eternal life. Um, so so there are times clearly in the Bible where there's a providential view where God is ultimately in control of what's happening and things that look really evil end up being good later. And we didn't understand it in the moment because we didn't understand God's view or God's plan. Does that kind of make sense? Now, yeah, Sheldon. I seem to recall reading somewhere that doesn't the Presbyterian part of their doctrine is divine providence? Yeah, so Presbyterians like providence or at least Calvin liked providence. I'm not sure all Presbyterians do, um, but but Calvin really liked this idea a lot. Yes, um, and and we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, right? That God is ultimately in charge, um, and uh, the the tricky part, and um, and this whole, we'll come to this again later. But the tricky part of this whole idea of providence is um, to what extent is God making the bad things happen? And to what extent is God allowing them to happen and then miraculously working good from them? There's a big difference between I, I made you murder my son and you murdered my son, which was horrible, but I am so good that even out of that horror, I can work salvation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where does predestination fall? <sighs> um, okay, yeah, we got the word. Okay. Um, so yeah, this would deserves a whole night, but the brief, the brief response I would give. Uh, the question is, where does predestination fit into this conversation? And um, uh, I would articulate predestination as a subset of providence. Okay, so providence is the idea, of, and the, the providential view, as I'm describing it here, the extreme version of it is the idea that God is in charge of everything that ever happens, and it all happens because God wants it to happen. And things that we think are bad, we just think are bad because we don't yet understand how they're going to be good later. Um, which is not my theology. I'm not quite that far down the path. Um, uh, predestination is the idea that, in a nutshell, we are such incredibly selfish, sinful human beings that we would never go to God on our own. Because God is selfless and beautiful and good, and we're the opposite. And so we need God's help even to profess faith. Right? Um, we see this throughout the Bible. So, you know, we have 
Uh, I often quote Ephesians chapter two, where Paul says, you know, we have, we, we are saved by faith and even this is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Um, the, the extreme idea of predestination, which is also not my theology, is that God sort of, before anything ever happens, just randomly picks people, right? You're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, 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 hell, heaven, right? Um, I, I don't think that's biblical. Um, what we do see in the Bible very clearly is that God does pick people who are undeserving, like Abraham. And he uses them to be a blessing to others, right? Or he expects them to partner with him to be a blessing to others. Um, but Abraham doesn't, isn't saved so that he can go to heaven or even go to hell. He's saved so that everybody can go to heaven, right? I mean, that's the intent. Um, so I would argue um, a, a, an appropriate view of predestination would be, yes, sinful Jim Gates probably wouldn't go to God on his own, but God helps me come to faith, and then God sends me to help others come to faith. How, how do the people that subscribe to predestination um, square with sending evangelists out and being evangelists? They stink at it. Um, it's one of the reasons there's not very many Presbyterians. I mean, compared to, say, Methodists. Right. By the way, you guys are taking me down these rabbit holes. Um, so, by the way, um, so obviously Methodists exploded across the United States when Methodism came to the United States and was for um, decades the largest Protestant denomination, right? Bigger than Baptists, bigger than everybody else. Um, and Presbyterians who got here long before the Methodists got here, like 100 years before the Methodists came, Presbyterians were here. Presbyterians spread really, really slow. There's some functional reasons for that, but, but I think behind those functional reasons are basically Presbyterians had a theology that didn't inspire evangelism, and Methodists had a theology that did inspire evangelism. Interestingly, they agree, so Calvin and Wesley would have agreed on the fundamental idea that you cannot come to faith on your own, that it requires the Holy Spirit to um, uh, regenerate you enough that you can choose to have faith so that you can be saved. But Wesley believed that everybody gets that Holy Spirit, right? So Wesley would have said 100% of people will receive the power of the Holy Spirit when the gospel comes, so they have the real capacity to choose or not. And Calvin would have said, um, why would God waste his Holy Spirit on people that he knows are going to say no later? No, he just gives the Holy Spirit to people who are going to say yes. All this is not in the Bible. I mean, it's not, it's not not in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible, right? Um, and I'm I'm probably closer to Wesley than Calvin on this one. Um, but uh, what I would argue is that the important takeaway of predestination is, um, and this is Paul's point in Ephesians, so that no one can boast, right? That I don't, I'm not saved because I'm more moral than you. Neither am I saved to more spiritual than you or I'm smarter than you, right? My salvation is a gift of God. That's what grace means, it's gift. Um, and I have this gift so that I can give it away to other people. Do you think that God would have given us a direct answer if we could have thought like him? Uh, great <laughs> point. Right. Uh, yeah, it's an excellent point, right? So, um, and this is what Isaiah says, right? Your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways are not my ways. And so it's not ours to, to question. We don't get it. No. Exactly right. Uh, well, and, and that would have been Luther's point, right? Luther would have said, um, I basically, Luther would have, if you had a conversation with Luther, you would say, I basically think I believe in predestination, but I'm not sure I get it. And let's not talk about it because it just confuses the heck out of people. And, you know, let's just talk about Jesus. That's what Luther would say. So, um, you guys are playing, we're, we see what you did. Okay. Are we going too fast for you? You're going too fast. Uh, okay. So, providential view. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to say was the pedagogical view. Okay. And um, these are, remember, we're talking about evil and not predestination. Okay. Um, the, the pedagogical view is the idea that what we perceive as evil is actually ignorance, okay? This also is not completely unbiblical. I don't think it's quite right, but it's not unbiblical, right? So, for example, um, as we see um, um, Adam and Eve in the garden, or Cain and Abel after the garden, maybe even a better example, um, uh, it's, it's like God speaking to children who are still learning what good and evil is, right? And so um, this whole process that we perceive as sin um, from the pedagogical view is instruction. God's saying, hey, you didn't know that putting your hand on the stove was going to burn you. Now you do. Now you won't put your hand on the stove anymore. 
right? You didn't know that if you stayed up late, you'd be exhausted and not good for school in the morning. And now you do, and now you're gonna go to bed at a reasonable time, right? Um, I don't think that captures the fullness of scripture, but but there is a component, right, that makes some sense. Sure, that you do see, I mean, even in a very functional way, right? Like in the Old Testament, they kill animals for their sins. Well, animals don't take away sins, right? But that's a teaching, like you teach children, so that when the real Savior comes and he dies for our sins, we're like, oh yeah, we were taught about that for a few hundred years, and now we understand what we we're supposed to learn, right? Okay, um, boy, all of those are, are, are um, uh, ways we think about evil that aren't totally wrong, um, but aren't, I don't think, totally right either, okay? Um, so let's talk about uh, where evil comes from, and these are the three things you guys named earlier, right? So uh, the, my, my first answer when anybody talks about why does suffering happen is I usually talk about free will, right? And I think this is something we all already believe and know, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but, but basically I would say... Um, in order to allow me to be a real meaningful person and for God to have a real relationship with me and for me to actually love him, I have to have the ability to not love him, right? It has to be a free choice. And so just like it wouldn't be a good marriage if I ran and found Krista and beat her over the head of the club and dragged her off by her hair, so too it wouldn't be a good relationship between me and God if he forced me to make good choices all the time. So I think instead he gives me the freedom to make choices. And that's really important. Um, and I, I think that's an idea that resonates with most people, right? Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, the immediate question would be, God made us good and gave us freedom. Why would we choose bad, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if I was like, here, um, have, uh, I don't know, um, here, have an apple that looks red and juicy and delicious, and here's a rotten apple that's moldy and there's worms growing out of it, which one would you like? You're going to pick the healthy apple 100% of the time. So, so why do we make wrong choices, right? Um, uh, and, and so um, this brings up this idea of original sin. So in our tradition, and we see this a lot in Romans, um, Paul expresses this sort of explicitly, but um, we believe that um, when Adam and Eve, when the first humans um, introduced self-centeredness into the world, it was a new idea. I mean, we were designed to be God-centered, right? and we introduced self-centeredness. Um, and, and somehow that sort of is, is bred into us, right? And, and um, in the Bible, I think of that kind of literally, like it passed on through the seed of Adam into his descendants. Um, but I, I might say it's probably more metaphorical um, to the idea that um, after self-centeredness comes into the world, uh, everybody I know is like that. And every culture I know is like that. And I, and I grow up being like that. And... Um, there is something spiritually broken in me. Um, and all of that together um, is rooted in this idea that like early on we screwed up. If we had screwed up early on, we wouldn't have this problem. And, and this is not, even for a non-Christian, it's not a crazy idea, right? So we would say um, today uh, there, are, there are things really within our culture today that are the effects of sins from hundreds of years ago. I mean, think about even in the last 10 years, how much conflict we've had in our country over the issue of race. Why do we have that? Because hundreds of years ago, we held black people as slaves, right? And like, we're still dealing with the effects of that hundreds of years later. Um, so I didn't do that. My mom didn't do that. My dad didn't do that. My grandparents didn't do that. But you know what? I do have ancestors that did in my family tree. Far enough back, you go. Um, so as, as we hear in um, the Ten Commandments, right, you know, the, um, I will punish the children for the sins of their fathers from the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, that there are generational effects of sin. Um, and we see that in other really obvious ways, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many families I've talked to people this week who shared, you know, that um, they struggle with alcohol and their parents struggle with alcohol and their grandparents struggle with alcohol and because there's a generational effect, right? Um, so we have, we have free will, but we're not entirely free because our ancestors screwed up and then their ancestors screwed up and then all the way back down the line, right? Um, but I obviously the question again would be, well, why did the first people, why did Adam and Eve, why did the first humans screw up? And that brings us to Satan, as we mentioned earlier, right? That, that we believe, and the Bible is very clear in Genesis, that you know, the serpent comes and tempts 
not a regular serpent, right? There aren't any other talking animals in Genesis. Um, the serpent shows up and it tempts Adam and Eve to do the opposite of what God asked them to do. And so uh, there is this temptation um, to be opposed to God that gets introduced early, early, early in the pages of scripture. Um, that's a very important point for us. Um, so let's, let's talk about Satan for a minute. And um, uh, we've, we've done some of this before, so I don't want to repeat too much. But um, just some, some big picture sketch of our, our theology around Satan. So the first thing I, I would say, as we mentioned earlier, is we do not believe that Satan is the opposite of God. Um, though the Bible doesn't say this um, word for word, it, the overwhelming consensus of the church has been that Satan is a fallen angel, right? That Satan was um, one of the spiritual beings um, that for some reason, um, fell away from um, faithfulness to Yahweh, faithfulness to God. And um, we, we hear in Revelation chapter 12 that when that happened, um, Revelation chapter 12 calls him the dragon, right? Not kind of like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, the dragon. And Revelation chapter 12, a third of the angels fall with him, right? So a third of all of the spiritual beings um, go into rebellion against God when, and it's, it's Satan that begins it, and he's the greatest of them. Um, so this is actually a, a pretty consistent message throughout the New Testament, um, that Satan is this personal being who is um, um, a fallen angel, who is opposed to God, who has a host of other fallen angels who work with him, uh, we call demons, uh, and that a lot of Jesus's ministry is driving out the, the spiritual forces that are opposed to God. Um, but this isn't original to the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well. We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 6, right? When the sons of man, uh, I'm sorry, the sons of God sleep with the daughters of man, right? And then God has to intervene and wipe everybody out. Um, it's, it's spiritual beings, right? We see it in the serpent in the garden. Um, the, um, the word Satan, anybody know what the word Satan means? It means accuser. That's what's the Hebrew word for accuser. Um, and there are many Satans in the Bible um, who are like regular people. Um, I accuse you of stealing my sheep. I'm the Satan in this situation. Um, or I'm, I'm sorry, I should say I'm a Satan. Um, but when in the Old Testament we see a capital S and we translate the word Satan, it's when it says the Satan. Okay, and there's only, hmm, yeah, there's only three times in the Old Testament that we have the phrase, the Satan, okay? That's in Job and in Zechariah and in Second Chronicles. And um, Second Chronicles, we don't get a lot of details, but in Job and in Zechariah, the Satan is an angelic figure who's in God's court, who is accusing people that God thinks are good. Right, so he accuses Job. Um, he says Job wouldn't really be faithful if you took away your blessings. Um, and he accuses in, in, in the book of Zechariah, he's actually accusing the prophet Josh, I mean, sorry, the priest Joshua. Um, and God's like, No, I think Joshua's great. And Satan's like, No, Joshua's terrible. Um, so he's like a prosecuting attorney, kind of. Um, the Genesis story with the serpent doesn't use the Hebrew phrase the Satan, but we've always assumed they seem like the same guy. Um, so all of that together gives us a biblical picture of, a, of an angelic being who's fallen away from God, who's actively um, working to mess up the relationship between God and the rest of God's creatures, right? By accusing them before God or by tempting them to make poor decisions and run away from God. Shelby, the is in fact a spiritual being that's that he has that ability to transform into any guise. Uh, yeah, so this is a really interesting question. Um, we, we, we get no description in scripture about the powers of Satan, I mean, by, by which I mean like how much he can and can't do. Um, we, we get um, a few places where he appears um, seemingly in bodily form, the main one being with Jesus in the desert, 
Um, as any of, we don't get any description of him. We don't, is he tall? Is he short? Does he have three arms? Does he look like a talking snake? We don't know. Right? It just says Satan there. Um, we get a description of him as a serpent, a very strange serpent, a serpent that apparently starts off not crawling on his belly, whatever he's doing. I think he's flying, but that's not really the time and the place. Um, he gets cursed and he has to crawl on his belly. So clearly he's not originally crawling on his belly. Right? Um, and he talks, which is unusual for serpents. Um, uh, but otherwise, we don't get a clear picture. You know, he offers Jesus all the kingdom of the earth people bow down and worship him. And the implication in scripture is he could legitimately make that offer, right? That he's not just lying, though he is the father of lies, but that if Jesus had done that, he could have followed through. Um, so he has, obviously has some significant supernatural power, but he's not the opposite of God, which means a lot of things. One thing that's really important that I thought about a lot lately is um, Satan's not all-knowing, right? Uh, why does that matter? Um, because I think there have been times in my life where I've felt some temptation to sin, and I've been like, I don't want to do that. And um, sometimes I just think it in my head, like, you know, stupid Satan, go in and be alone. Um, he can't hear that. Satan can't hear what's going on in my head. God can, but Satan's not all-knowing. So now sometimes I'll be like, Satan, you're an idiot, go away, right? I'll, I'll say it out loud. You're like, well, maybe he could hear that. I mean, he definitely can hear it in my head. Maybe, maybe if he's tempting me right now, he can hear that. Um, so, uh, you know, he has some supernatural power, but not on the level of God. Um, traditionally, the church has said he's the opposite of the archangel Michael, right? Um, because in Revelation, Michael and the, and, the, and the devil fight, and Michael wins. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I just answered that question. Uh, this is the question I can't answer. And, and this is, uh, I think, a real challenge for us. Why does Satan fall? Now, it's not that the Bible doesn't know the answer to this question. The Bible never tries to make an effort to answer it, right? It's almost like it doesn't care. Um, we have, you know, primarily that story in Revelation chapter 12 about the fall of Satan. Um, and we can conjecture things, but we're never told why. Um, and I, I think one of the challenges for the, you know, a philosophical, theological challenge for the Christian faith is, um, I understand why we fell, because we were tempted. But nobody tempted Satan. And Satan's a, a more powerful angelic being. And, and with God, why would he ever choose the poison apple over the healthy, juicy apple? Um, we don't have an immediate answer to that. It's a good question. It's a good question. He didn't get thrown out of that on his own free will. Well, he has free will, but why would you pick a bad choice, you know, given the good choices? So we're coming back to that. Hold that thought. Um, are, are we good? Just broad strokes about this idea of Satan? Questions or thoughts about that? You said that Satan doesn't, can't hear. So who, who is Jesus talking to? It's not that he can't hear anything. It's that he's not omniscient. Okay. So I don't believe Satan can hear things that I say in my head. So I sometimes talk out loud. Like, if I need to say, get behind me, Satan, I say, get behind me, Satan. So then he'll hear. Yeah. Okay, uh, that makes sense. I, I imagine um, that if I'm feeling a temptation at that moment, maybe he's focused on me enough that he can hear me call him out. Um, and I think when Jesus is with him, clearly, like, they are having a conversation. I mean, there's a moment there. So clearly they can hear each other then. But Jesus can hear me without me saying anything out loud. He knows what's in my heart. Right? He did. When he walked on earth, he knew what's in the hearts of people. Right? Yeah. Somewhere along the line, I either would learn or thought I learned that uh, the fault uh, of Satan was his arrogance, that he wanted to, felt that he was equal to, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's where his trouble came into. This is the, this is good. Um, the comment was that, if you can't hear online, that Satan felt because of pride. Um, this is the traditional answer of the church um, because it makes the most sense. But um, I just can't point you to a Bible verse that says it. Um, but uh, the church has, when we've debated about why would Satan fall, we've said, well, it's hard to go with any reason except for pride because he's not falling because he's hungry, because he's a spiritual being. He's not falling because he's tempted into sexual sin. He's a spiritual being. He's not falling because he's greedy or uh, he's a spiritual being isn't any of that stuff right so what's left well maybe it's pride 
Um, okay, good. Gonna keep going. Um, so, um, as we talk about this problem with evil, um, it's not just that why does evil start, but also why does evil continue to exist, right? Um, and this is a, a good question for us as believers. And boy, there's a lot of good, re good answers to this. Um, we can talk about, as we've already done, free will. Um, we can talk about the generational effects of sin. Um, Satan has free will, right? And continues to have free will, as do the demons. Um, we can talk about the idea that God's teaching us. Um, C.S. Lewis sometimes talks about pain as God's megaphone to the world. And, and there are a few things we see in scripture. Um, I think all that stuff is great, by the way. Those are good possible answers. Um, there's two things in scripture, um, or sorry, one thing in scripture and one thing outside of scripture that we see often that just give me a little bit of pause. Um, the thing we see in scripture is either that sometimes suffering is a punishment for sin. And, and that is true. In the Bible, there are plenty of times we can point to, I mean, like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Where, where God causes suffering as a punishment for sin. <coughs> Absolutely. No doubt about it. However, in the New Testament, Jesus has several times where he teaches about this. And he says, be careful you don't assume that it's always, that every um, act of evil or suffering is God's punishing of sin. So remember, um, who sinned, this man or his parents, if he was born blind? And Jesus' answer is, neither. It's for the glory of God to be revealed in him, as now I take away his blindness. Or Jesus talks about, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, you know, there's a tower that falls and kills a bunch of people in Jerusalem. And he says, do you think they're the worst sinners in Jerusalem because the tower fell on them? Absolutely not. That's ridiculous. But all of you are sinners, and all of you need to repent. Right? Um, so Jesus makes the point um, that not every, and perhaps um, um, that not every um, act of suffering is a punishment for sin. And, and I would argue, perhaps, um, that actually the punishment for sin is, is the um, exception rather than the rule, right? That in Scripture, when God chooses to, to you know, punish someone for their sins, it's almost always in the Old Testament, when he's still teaching them about what sin and salvation and righteousness and forgiveness are all about. And they still have a very this earth mentality in the Old Testament. Right? In the Old Testament, there's not a lot of talk about heaven, not a lot of talk about hell, not a lot of talk about resurrection. Um, it's all about this life and being rewarded or punished in this life for our righteousness or our sin. But the New Testament takes a very different track. And Jesus says, you're going to be rewarded or punished in the next life for your righteousness or sin, right? Um, and that all of that stuff in the Old Testament was part of how God taught us these concepts because we were too little and dumb to understand the idea of heaven and hell at that point. Now we do. And so now we understand that somebody can have a horrible life and it's not because they were a sinner. Um, remember, remember the parable about... Um, the rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus has an awful life, and the rich man has a great life. The reason Jesus tells this parable is because for a normal Jewish person of his day, they would assume the rich man has a great life because God is blessing him for all his good choices. And Lazarus has a horrible life because God's punishing him for all his bad choices. Then the reveal of that story is the opposite, right? The rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. And they're like, this doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm trying to teach you um, this idea that real righteousness, real justice happens after death, right? In heaven and hell. Yeah, um, we were to, uh, well, my mind now disappeared. If we were, if sin uh, was, if, if everything that happened bad to us uh, was because of sin, then we'd all be dead. Uh huh. So, it's the consequences of sin right. that we are experiencing. Right. The generational effects of the Not third and fourth generation. Even, you know. Oh, even in my own life. Yeah, sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I yell at my kids and my kids don't feel loved. And I, right. All that. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other problematic answer about the continuance of evil or the existence of evil that I hear a lot and it really bugs me when I hear it from Christians is the contrast argument. 
The contrast argument is, in a nutshell, you can't know good if there's not some evil around to show the difference, right? That you got to have evil to have good, you got to have good to have evil. And when you see real evil, it lets you know how great real good is. Right? Um, and, and this bugs me. Um, the main reason it bugs me is it suggests that you need one to have the other, which is not our belief, right? We believe that one day there will be no more evil and only good, right? That Jesus will come back and the resurrection of the dead and the righteous judgment. And then like sin and death and evil are gone forever. And, and then we're in God's kingdom, everything's perfect. And we don't need evil at that point for it to make sense. Um, and we believe at the beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, there was no evil, right? I mean, there was, it was all perfect. Um, so we don't believe you have to have some bad to see how good the good is, right? That's just not our theology. Um, okay. Um, however, um, we do believe, and this is a really important idea, um, that God has the ability to triumph over our worst and make it into something good. And this is where I would take that, um, that idea I said earlier of, of uh, the, um, the providence view, and I, I tweak it a little bit, and I would say, um, no, God doesn't make every little thing happen that happens, but nothing that happens can thwart God's good plan. And in everything, this is what Paul says in Romans, in everything that happens, God is still working for the good of those he loves, who are called according to his purpose. We may not be able to see it, and it doesn't mean it's good, right? It's not like God says, oh, I'm so happy that, you know, your puppy died. No, um, he's simply saying, even in the death of your puppy, God's still going to you know, find some way eventually to work goodness from it. That could be way down the road. It could be after you're dead, right? Um, and in God's ideal world, the puppy would not have died. But um, God is the God who works resurrection even after death. Um, so that's big for us. Um, and I just talked about good existing without evil, but not vice versa. Um, okay. Huh. Okay, great. This is because of predestination that I'm so far behind. Um, it's great. Love it. I'm just giving you grace. Um, so I, I wanted to come back to this, this thing again, because I, I have one big idea that helps me as I think about the problem of evil. Okay, it's not my idea, someone else's idea. Um, so we said earlier um, that, you know, uh, we began with this idea that the problem of evil is uniquely challenging for monotheistic faiths like ours, because we have these three premises, right? God is good, God's all powerful, evil exists. Um, and we've talked around this a lot, but, but just to come back to this idea again briefly, I would say, um, the very extreme version of Calvinism, which is not modern Presbyterian church, would challenge premise, I argue, would challenge premise one. Like they would say, well, God makes it all happen. Right? That's not our, that's not my faith. Um, the other extreme version challenges premise two. There are plenty of Christians today, and I've read authors who believe something we call open theism, which basically is the idea that God is good um, and evil exists, but God's not really in control. Like God is reacting in real time like we are. And I think that's nonsense, right? But there are Christians that believe that. Um, uh, I, I would, um, in this particular conversation, challenge premise three. Um, and this is what St. Augustine so famously did um, in his theology. Not that there isn't evil, um, but that we're not understanding evil correctly. Um, so <clears throat> Augustine says <coughs> that evil is a privation. Um, and in a nutshell, a privation is the absence of something, okay? And um, he says, this is his reasoning. He says, God is the source of all goodness, right? I think that makes good sense to us. Um, evil is separation from God. I think that makes good sense to us too. And so he says, evil, therefore, is a lack of God and a lack of good. It has no existence in itself. Um, so here's, the, here's the, what that would look like. Um, he would say... Um, even Satan isn't perfect evil. Why not? Well, Satan has intelligence, and intelligence is good. Satan has willpower. Willpower is good. Satan has creativity. Creativity is good. Is he using them in good ways? No, he is not. Right? But he is dependent. Satan is dependent on God to be able to have intelligence and willpower and creativity, because God, those are good, and God is the source of all good things. Um, so if Satan was completely removed from God, what would happen? Is existence a good thing? Yes, it is. Right? So being completely removed from God would mean 
like not being intelligent or having willpower or having creativity or existing. So Augustine's idea, which is a really interesting one, is that um, evil doesn't literally exist because evil is the absence of good. Uh, and uh, the metaphor he uses, which I think is a biblical metaphor, is darkness, right? He says, um, if I wanted, I could get a flashlight. Turn the lights off in this room. I could get a flashlight and I could create light in this room. Right? I cannot create darkness in this room. You cannot get a machine that makes darkness because darkness is the absence of light. Any small amount of light will overcome any amount of darkness because darkness has no existence in itself, right? Pretty basic. Um, so in the same way, um, evil has no existence in itself. It's just distance from God. From God. However, darkness doesn't exist. This affect our ability to see, right? I mean, so it's not that evil doesn't have meaningful, horrible effects in our world. It's just that it's not something that God made, right? It's the it's it's distance from God. So why does Satan fall? Well, he gets some distance from God. Right? Any amount, we don't know why, maybe it's pride, but any amount of distance from God is a problem, right? Um, uh, the other metaphor I would use to describe this would be um, in the story of creation and then later in the story of the flood, and really throughout the whole Hebrew Bible, um, but especially in those two stories, water represents chaos, right? And if you remember in the, in the first chapter of Genesis, it says, you know, God makes heavens the earth, and there's just water everywhere. Like, uh, and, and in their conception, in the Jewish mindset, it's not like there's this emptiness of space. No, it's just water everywhere. Water is chaos. And God separates the water above from the water below. Right? And he makes the sky. There's water above the sky, and there's water under the sky. Then he separates the water again and makes the dry land. Um, and then the flood happens, right? He lets all the water above the sky come back in. Well, then he separates it again, and he creates the dry land again. And God keeps bringing order out of chaos, right? And very clearly, beautifully defined order in, in Genesis. Um, chaos is just the absence of order, right? It's just, it's just when God hasn't shown up yet and made sense of things, it's just the mess you have. Um, chaos doesn't have an existence in itself. It's just God hasn't gotten there yet to fix it. Um, so uh, Augustine says... Things that are made need his good, i.e. the chief good, the supreme essence. They become less when by sin they are less attracted to him. But they are never entirely separated from him. Otherwise, they would not exist at all. Um, so Augustine would say, if you want to define righteousness and sin, it's simply how close to God are you, how far from God are you. The further you get from God, the less goodness, the less righteousness you have. Um, the closer you are, the more goodness, the more righteousness you have. Um, so uh, I know I'm almost out of time. So very briefly, how does this idea help us? Um, uh, as I just said, um, it gives us a definition for what evil and good mean, right? Evil is not uh, obeying rules or good, uh, breaking rules and good is obeying rules. It's, it's proximity to God. Am I getting closer to the source of goodness or am I moving further from the source of goodness? Um, it explains why evil happens because I have free will. If I move away from God, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna experience evil, right? It's not creating something. I'm just getting further from the source of life. Uh, it's an encouragement for obedience. Um, I think about this often, but I, I know many people who have said, "Boy, I don't really want to become a Christian." There's all these rules you have to follow, and you can't do all the fun stuff in life. Um, and I would say the exact opposite, right? Which is, as Jesus says, He came that we would have life and more life than we had before, uh, the, the disciple isn't missing out on the goodness of life. They're experiencing the, the best of life. Uh, and the other side um, literally has nothing to offer. They will just give you nothing, right? What will um, infidelity give you? What will um, uh, alcohol give you? What will um, judging your neighbor give you? It will give you nothing. Right? It'll, it'll literally give you nothing. You'll just get further and further from happiness and joy and peace because you're getting further from God. Um, uh, this is a really important idea that I think about a lot. Um, this means we are, this idea of privation means we're never separate from God in this life. We can be further or closer to God, but in this life, we're never completely without him. Uh, the worst human being in this life 
is not completely separated from God. Because if we were, we would just cease to be. So there's always a chance, right, that that worst human being could be redeemed and forgiven and come back to Jesus um, because we're never separate. And Romans talks about Christians, right, and the ideas for Christians in life and in death, not just in this life, but in the next life too, we're never separate from God. Uh, and then <clears throat> I think this is my, is my last thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, the, the last thing I would mention is, you know, we, this idea of privation is helpful because it means you know we, we know we're going to win. Evil is self-defeated. When evil moves away from God as it does so, it moves away from the source of all good things. And eventually evil will move away from existence. Right. And so you know this is the um, the old Christian saying, oh that evil would reach its perfection. Because perfect evil just ceases to exist, which is what we believe eventually will happen, right? Jesus will come back and evil will completely lose. Not like restrained or defeated but still around but gone because it'll be without god um so uh we don't have time to do this we're just not gonna um oh yeah okay yes we do sorry go back go back go back back i just want to say one thing about this this last slide because i'm out of time um i want to say um we could talk about another time but um the the biggest concern i have with the whole privation idea i really like it a lot my biggest concern is um, the lack of something sounds very passive, right? So when we think about, I hate to say this because I feel like Hitler comes up in every conversation, um, but when you think about Hitler, right, um, it seems almost insufficient to say he had a lack of goodness. It seems like he was more than a lack of goodness. He was very actively bad, right? And in the same way, Satan feels like more than just a lack of goodness or a distance from God. He's like opposed to God. Right? And, and, and I think it's a helpful addition to this conversation. Um, but even the opposition to God um, is still a, a, a distance. right? I'm simply saying, hey, I don't like this about God. So I'm going to run in the opposite direction and be different from him. And, and Satan would say, I want to get as many people to run with me in that direction as I possibly can, right? Um, still, uh, Satan's not creating something new. He doesn't have any good ideas that God never had. He's not making a new way of being or living. He's simply saying, let's just not do what God wants. Right? And just not doing what God wants is the same thing as just running away from God. Disobedience. Disobedience. Right? Yeah. So how do people create new imaginative people. Yeah, so right, the question, how do people make new and imaginative people? I, I think part of the answer is it's still, they have some good in them. I mean, because imagination is good, right? So um, for me to come up with a new way of being horrible to someone is only possible because there's still part of me that is in the image of God, right? That's still, I'm not completely separate from God and I have some goodness in him and me. Um, eventually I won't, right? I mean, if I keep down that path, if I keep walking away from God, eventually I won't be able to make new and imaginative kinds of evil, right? Because I'll be all alone, yeah. Um, okay, I apologize, I went over. So let me just, I'm, I'm done talking, but questions, does that privation idea make sense? Questions or thoughts about that that I could answer? A famous friend of mine, Southern Baptist and a cousin of my wife, said in the beginning there was nothing then god created light and there was still nothing but you could see it there <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's really good that's also very true i love it that's great that's great yeah good how would you explain this is just something i really struggle with conversation how do you explain like the evilness of a 14 year old boy just killed this 10-year-old girl. Like, yeah. I struggle with that. Yeah. So if you couldn't hear online, the comment was, how do you explain the evilness of a 14-year-old boy who just kills a 10-year-old child? Um, so as I, I kind of go back to the very beginning of our conversation and say, um, all of this is great theology and philosophy, but when you're talking about somebody's child that died, you've got to lead with your pastoral foot right, and say, hey, I just want to hear your story. Um, 
when when you're thinking about it from an intellectual perspective, I would say, um, unfortunately, our capacity for running from God is very, very big. Right? And we have an amazing ability to do great things and an amazing ability to do horrible things. And it would be nice if um, we learned all of that as we got older, but it turns out it starts pretty young, right? And um, that, that extraordinary selfishness that would say, you don't deserve to live, I don't want you to live, um, you know, is, is something that we're partly born with and we partly learn from our culture and we partly learn from the people around us. And, um, but if we don't move towards God, there's only one, one other way to move. You know, you're always moving towards more away from it. Um, so unfortunately, the really sad thing is that I, I am no longer surprised by the capacity for humans to do evil. I mean, and, and as Sheldon said, we, we do come up with new original ideas of how to do evil on a regular basis, but uh, it just doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me anymore. I mean, it, it shocks me and it saddens me, but then I think, yeah, we are very, very broken. Um, and, and I don't know that personal kid story. I don't know what his brokenness looks like or what caused it or what the factors were that led to it. And I'm sure there are many. Um, but people run from God and they run hard and they run fast. I would guess that there's some genetic factors in there too. You know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I think that something goes awry mm -hmm. in their ability to, to think mm -hmm. rationally or about the consequences of some of that stuff. Yeah. I, you know. We, we know that, I mean, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but we know that um, teenagers their brains are not fully developed. And one of the things that, that is least developed in a teenager's brain is the understanding of consequence, right? Um, and this is why teenagers make stupid decisions, right? There's a ton of research about this that basically says, like, if you asked a teenager to articulate consequence, they could articulate it, or they don't really believe it, right? By the way, you didn't believe it when you were a teenager either. You thought you could drive fast and you'd never get caught, you'd never run out of an accident or whatever else. Um, so yes, there's no doubt that um, teenagers really struggle with that. Um, I always struggle with um, you know, a, a desire on the one hand to try to understand where someone's coming from no, no matter how evil they are. And on the other hand, to avoid excuse making for them. And, and I wear that sometimes in our culture, we love to make excuses. Oh, well, they wouldn't have done that if they didn't have this disease or they didn't have this thing or whatever else. And I'd say, you know, um, that might be true, but we are not defined by what happens to us, but our responses to it, right? And so there are people that have horrible things happen to them that respond in incredible ways. There are people that have unbelievably privileged lives that respond in really horrible ways. And at the end of the day, you are responsible for how you respond to your life, um, no matter what other circumstances affect you. Okay. Um, hey, so fun, evil, yay. Um, I, I am sorry um, to do this on a down note and talking about evil, um, but um, I, I had originally planned to try to do one or two more classes before I went on sabbatical, but I am trying to meet with so many people right now. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is our last time before I come back, which is very sad. Um, so we will be back um, on September 14th. And I have no idea what we're doing then, but if you have some ideas of things you want to do, I would love your ideas, email me and tell me them. Um, but uh, until then, um, we will be um, uh, adjourned. The kids and the youth will keep meeting, the kids for three more weeks, the youth will meet consistently throughout the summer. So if you've got um, grandkids or something coming, keep bringing them, um, but, but, but we will not meet next couple weeks. Um, okay. Let me, I'm not leaving right this second if anyone has any other questions, but I, um, let me pray because I'm way over time and then um, we'll go about <clears throat> our evenings. Lord God, 
we thank you that you are good and that you are all powerful uh, and that you um, have a good plan that no evil can thwart. We recognize uh, that we contribute to that evil when we run from you, uh, but we are so thankful we get to contribute to that good plan when we run back. And so we pray, Lord, that today um, and in the coming days and weeks and months, you would give us an opportunity to be involved, not just in running back to you, but perhaps in turning other people around. Uh, and we ask, Lord, for the privilege of a conversation with someone who doesn't believe, or for the privilege of a conversation with someone who is struggling in their faith, and that we might perhaps um, let them feel heard, and if appropriate, share um, some ideas or wisdom that helps them uh, in their journey to salvation. Jesus, we thank you um, for your life, death, and resurrection. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.